This is episode 270 with the authors of Born to Run 2, the guys who created a cultural phenomenon with the book Born to Run, author Chris McDougall and coach Eric Orton. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features two guests, the author of the original Born to Run, Christopher McDougall, and his coach, Eric Orton. Their new book, Born to Run 2, The Ultimate Training Guide, is now available for pre-order. We're discussing the training principles that form the foundations of Born to Run from shoes to strength to form. Having fell in love with the Born to Run book more than a decade ago, this was a real treat for me, and I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. If you're new here, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And you can find me on Instagram at jasonfitz1. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world, no matter how fast they are, with our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and our suite of training programs to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. We are supported by the Rock and Roll Arizona Race Series. Mark your calendars for January 14th and 15th because Rock and Roll Arizona is the premier runcation. Sign up today at runrockandroll.com slash Arizona and use the code STRENGTHRUNNING15 for 15% off any distance that you'd like to register for. Get ready for the Valley of the Run. We're also supported by Melon, a premium hat brand that I've been eyeing for a long time on Instagram, and now I'm thrilled that we've partnered together. Get 20% off your first order at melon.com slash strengthrunning with code strengthrunning at checkout. Get yourself the last hat you'll ever need with the most durable, water-repellent, and stylish hat that I've ever worn. That's M-E-L-I-N dot com slash strengthrunning and use code STRENGTHRUNNING for 20% off your first order. My guests today are Christopher McDougall and Eric Orton. Chris wrote Born to Run in 2009, which quickly became a cultural phenomenon, selling more books than any other running book that I'm aware of. He's partnered with his longtime running coach, Eric Orton, to write Born to Run 2, The Ultimate Training Guide, which goes into the physical training in a lot more detail. We're covering three important pillars of the Born to Run approach today, including a speed-first mentality, running form best practices, how to choose shoes, why and how to implement barefoot running into your training, and a lot more. I've long been an admirer of Chris's ability to tell one hell of a story, so hopefully I didn't fanboy too much on this episode. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Chris McDougall and Eric Orton. Chris and Eric, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys. I very rarely do a three-person conversation here on the show, so I'm really excited about this. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it, and I really appreciate you including the better half of my brain being Eric Gordon. <laughs> well, you two have partnered to write a really interesting book, Born to Run 2, The Ultimate Training Guide. And, you know, I'm like most runners. I, I bought the hardcover Born to Run in 20, 2009, 2010, fell in love with it. It was one of my favorite running books, uh, not just for the storytelling, but also a lot of the really interesting running form and running shoe science that was included in that book. And this, the Born to Run 2 book, really goes into a lot of those training principles that really piqued my interest as a running coach and a total running geek. So I'm excited to dive into some of these with you guys. Um, so what I'd like to do is just talk about some of these training principles that you have, because uh, I think they are sound, they're fundamental, and they're so helpful for runners that if we can internalize these, we're going to be much better runners. Our injury risk is going to plummet. So there's really a lot to love about here. Um, let's start with this principle of speed first, then distance. 
I, I like this for a lot of different reasons, uh, but I'm curious what the thinking is behind this approach and why you recommend working on speed before you recommend going on a 15, 20 mile long run. You know, it was curious to see for me when I first met Eric, it was in uh, City Park in Denver. And I was complaining about the fact that I was always injured and couldn't run. And I'd basically given up on it. And when Eric told me, you can reverse all that. You can run injury-free. You can enjoy it. And I was really surprised when his first step was to actually have me do sprints. It was the exact opposite of everything I would have expected. What Eric had me do was jog lightly and then every minute or so sprint for about 30 strides and then jog lightly and sprint. I had no idea what was going on there, but eventually over time I realized what he was doing was retraining me on running form. You know, it's actually harder to run poorly when you're running fast. And his idea was you can build in a lot of sloppiness into a jog. You can't be sloppy on a sprint. So you start to build in efficiency, lightness, quickness of turnover by sprinting. And so that to me was, was a terrific eye opener. And with that, you know, keep in mind that the 90-day program in the book is meant as a kind of what we call a reboot or a foundational program for any type of runner. One key thing I see through 25 years of coaching is the neuromuscular system and how important that is for all runners. And this really feeds right into that kind of speed approach of really training, rebooting, reigniting the neuromuscular system for health strength, and whatever type of running any runner wants to put into it. It goes into cadence, leg stiffness. Everything we want as running starts at the neuromuscular system. And that, so when we say speed, it's more from this perspective, a neuromuscular type of training. And I really like that because, you know, when you think about running form, the brain is what really controls most of your form. It's what you know. It's what you remember. It's what lives inside your muscle cells for muscle memory and all that. And the neuromuscular approach to having good running form is is really rewiring that communication between the brain and the muscles. And, and I find a lot of value in that approach. Um, and, and this is actually something that I think if you look at the top of the sport, you're going to see this being practiced because, you know, you look at the best marathoners in the world and most of them have come from a track background. They got fast before they went and started doing these very long distances. And so I think that is probably, you know, some of the best evidence that this works. This is really great. It is providing that movement foundation that is really helpful as you start running for longer and longer distances. You know, who else is a big fan of this approach? Emil Zatopek. Until you show me somebody else who has won all three gold medals in the three distance events, Show me someone who's going to have a better approach than Emil Zatopek. And he became famous. His The first marathon he ever ran was the Olympic marathon in 52, which he won. And he trained for that by doing 100-meter dashes. And people were looking at him and saying, Emil, you're doing 100-meter dashes. You're training for a 26-mile race. And he goes, well, I thought the point was to go fast, not to go slow. He wanted to train for a distance event by going fast. You know, I one time trained with Matt Carpenter, who has the Leadville Trail 100 record, and he said the same thing. The idea is you learn how to go fast, and then you shorten the, the, the throttle back time in between those fast bursts. The idea is basically you link together uh, hard-intensity efforts, and over time, you learn how to move quickly over the longer distance. And, and with this, one thing that maybe is missed on a lot of people is that a lot of times dysfunction occurs when we're running slow and when we're doing our, you know, quote unquote, endurance running where a lot of things can go wrong. Cadence is slower. Cadence is lower. Ground contact is higher. That's where the dysfunction takes place and building the speed first really layers that together. Yeah. And that approach I think is, is, is really great because, you know, you write in the book that it's so much easier to run with sloppy form when you're running really slow as opposed to when you're running fast, it's just much harder. It's more difficult. You know, I think trying to sprint as hard as you can, maybe uphill is the, the easiest way to perfect your running form because it automatically reinforces all those good habits of, of a proper gait cycle. Um, and so now, I, now I'm a little curious if someone is 
you know, they've been running for a year or two. They're, you know, beginner, intermediate runner. They have been doing mostly slow, easy running. And now they've been listening to us talk about all these great benefits of running fast. How can they start working in some of this type of sprint and acceleration work into their training so that they can improve their form and really work on that neuromuscular coordination without the injury risk? Because, you know, running fast does have a a certain injury risk. You know, how do we mitigate the two and get to a point where we're doing smart sprint workouts that are going to help us without raising the injury risk too high? Well, I think the, the key point here is understanding how long these should be. I mean, we're talking 8, 10, 15, 20 seconds of, of intervals, not one minute, two minute. That comes later. But when we're talking neuromuscular, the shorter and the faster, the better. And I, I think that really understand what that level of effort in, in combination with how long that interval is, is super, super important. Um, relationship. So it sounds like these are very short, you know, 100 meter or less sprints. Uh, What kind of recovery do you recommend? Uh, Is it a walking recovery? Is it a jogging recovery? How do you think about that? Again, that's that all goes into the equation, The, the shorter and the faster, when we're talking neuromuscular intervals, the longer the rest, the better. So now, when we're talking 10, 15, 20 seconds of sprints, we're talking two to three minutes of recovery to allow all the biochemistry adaptations that go into the body. They need that time of two to three minutes of walking to really do their, do their trick. And there's a lot of tricks that go involved with that. It creates lubrication in our body. And so much goes on during that recovery that you will begin to notice how good you feel by doing these as well. Jason, I feel like that's the key point right there. Eric is bringing up how good you feel. This was something that was a a mystery in plain sight when he first started having me sprint. What I first dreaded it when we were in City Park, and he tells me to sprint. I'm kind of like, wait, wait a minute. I haven't sprinted since I played high school basketball. Like who? Nobody sprints. Like a sprint is a recipe for a hamstring pull. And so I had to actually kind of like remember what it's like to go full speed. And after I did it, I remember feeling euphoric like ecstatic that was really fun and that's the reason why kids do everything at full throttle you know kids don't jog kids walk and they sprint there's no there's no middle gear for a kid and the reason why is sprinting feels good and your body rewards you for that sense of flight and so what i think is really intriguing about eric's approach about teaching speed is that it becomes this self-perpetuating upward cycle you sprint you feel good you gather your breath, you rest, you want to do it again. And that was the thing that I it really took hold in me when Eric started to train me was I wanted to keep doing these things. I didn't dread them. Yeah, I find that personally in my own running too. It's just boring to run very slow all the time. And sometimes you just got to let it rip. You got to just feel the, your legs moving underneath you and the wind in, in your hair or Chris and in me and you's case, uh, against your scalp. And, uh, you know, it's just so fun. And and I got to say too, it is so funny that you guys were in city park. I lived a block away from city park for over seven years. Uh, I probably ran by you at one point when you're out there running from tree to tree. (laughs) Wouldn't that have been cool if we could have had like, uh, had that moment of uh, like a photograph of you jogging past us while I'm like staring at, at, at Eric in bewilderment. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, my form probably wasn't as good as yours when you were working on it, doing all those sprints. Um, now, one of the things we've been talking about indirectly is running form, talking about how sprinting is sounds like a skill that we should practice often, that we should learn as, as a fundamental foundational skill in our running practice. And one of the benefits is that it really helps us refine our technique and run with more sound running form. What is your principles for good running form? What, what are the things that runners should think about when they go out there and they're running and they're wondering, do I even have good running form? Uh, how should I think about this? You know, that's the key question. And as a newcomer to this, you know, I, I was always told you run the way you run. Don't mix with your, mess with your natural form. We're all an experiment of one. We hear this over and over again. And to me, that just sounds absolutely insane. That nothing, you know, if you 
dive off a diving board and you belly flop, people don't just say, hey, well, you dive the way you dive. You know, Steph Curry isn't just chucking up a ball and they're like, hey, well, you shoot the way you shoot. No, everything has a pure physical perfection that you can strive toward. You may not get there, but the closer you get, the more efficient and more gratifying the movement becomes. And running is absolutely no different. But the difficulty is, is that if you're trying to monitor yourself, if you're trying to look at yourself and see if your form is good, the very act of looking at yourself is going to throw off your form. So what is a natural instinctive way to feel what is right and wrong without involving lots of like videotaping and friends telling you stuff? And the second difficulty, Jason, with teaching running form is that movement doesn't translate very well to language. You know, if I tell you to scratch your head, if I tell 10 people to scratch their head, well, some will use their right hand, some will use their left, some will scratch the front, some will scratch the back. So to give a verbal instruction doesn't really translate into what someone would actually do. I saw this actually with chi running. Uh, Dr. Um, Mark Pucuzella was doing a chi running clinic down in Shepherdstown. And, and Mark himself is a fantastic runner. He knows exactly what he's doing. But he would tell people, okay, bend forward from the ankles. You tell 10 people to do that, you'll get 10 different interpretations. So what Eric and I decided to do was let's come up with a way that is foolproof. And what we came up with was a simple thing. We tell people, put Rock Lobster by the B-52s on your phone, take off your shoes, and stand with your back to a wall. Put on the song and run in place to the song Rock Lobster. You cannot mess that up because if you kick backwards and overstride, you'll hit the wall. If you start to bend forward, you'll move away from the wall. And if you're running barefoot in place, you, you can't land on your heels. So you're going to land forefoot. And Rock Lobster is 180 beats per minute. So you're getting foot strike and cadence locked in. And the thing about that is once you hear Rock Lobster once and you run to it, you can never unhear it. So the next time you go out for a run, your brain will automatically turn on your own like Rock Lobster playlist. And you'll get that boom, 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 boom. You'll get that 180 beat. So that's what we uh, tell people. Work on foot strike, work on cadence, get that rhythm together, and you're good to go. And with that, you know, I think the key, the key thing with what Krista said is that, you know, we created this rock lobster five minute fix. Most people tend to want to continue to learn about run form where run form is relatively easy. We teach it in five minutes. It's, it's the muscle memory that you talked about earlier, Jason, that takes hold through time where I love the name of your podcast, strength running. Every step can be a form of strength running. Every step can be a form of strength training, and we can use running as a form of strength training, and that becomes the muscle memory where proper form is utilized in a strength way. And so that's where the, the exercises and the skills and drills in the book really come in to help with that muscle memory through time. Most people, if they don't feel like they have good form, they continue to try to learn more, which like Chris mentioned, that's that's a hard thing because you're, you're trying to learn something you already know, but it's really the muscle memory you're looking for. Yeah. And that probably speaks to the fact that practicing these drills and exercises regularly and frequently is a really good idea because this is a skill. Muscle memory is part of this. So we've got to continue to work on it uh, over time because it, it'll just sort of get ingrained into our brain, into our muscles, and that neuromuscular coordination will get really good. Now, I got to admit, I've never actually heard Rock Lobster. And now that you're saying I'm not going to be able to get it out of my head when I'm going running, maybe I shouldn't look it up and listen to it because it might be permanently stuck there. <laughs> exactly. You've never heard Rock Lobster? How have you not heard Rock Lobster? I probably have. I'm just not like understanding the name and matching it up to the sound that, that it corresponds to in my brain. I, but now, I should look it up. I now want to witness this. I, I, I want to see like the first experience of you running to Rock Lobster. Uh, you know, whether you think it's a bizarre idea or it's going to feel like party dance music to you. Well, the thing is, it has the 180 steps per minute beat to it. So it's going to be really helpful at getting to runners to increase their cadence. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put on the YouTube video so that I can figure this out because I think it's worth it. Well, and it's, it's key for people to feel it, like Chris said. Here we go. Here we go. Your head just starts bobbing. 
Okay. Now I can officially say I've definitely heard that song before. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be stuck in my head forever. All right. I do want to talk about an interesting uh, concept from the book. And, and I do think knowing how to run really fast, knowing how to sprint, working on your form, it does require having supple muscles. And in your book, there is this big focus on having a supple body for running and just making sure that the body is ready for running. When you guys talk about having supple muscles, what do you mean by the word supple in that context? You know, it's maybe sounds counterintuitive, but if we look at what are the two core principles of what performance and longevity in our running, it requires that cadence or that frequency of how often or how quickly we strike the ground, but also leg stiffness which sounds like a negative turn, but it's a very, very good thing. The better leg stiffness we have, the quicker we are able to rebound from each step to, to run forward in a healthy way. So having good leg stiffness is, is like having a good rubber band versus the old rubber band in the corner of the drawer that hasn't been used and it's, it's all crusty and you, you, you pull it and it'll snap. We, we want that rubber band to be nice and stretchy. So creating some of these skills and training your body to have a good rubber band is what I consider supple, well-efficient performing muscles that will help any type of runner, whether it's on the performance side or the longevity side. And I think where people go off base, Jason, a lot of times is, you know, you, they think being supple means stretching, you know? So you see people before a run and they're like, well, I think I'll grab my ankle and I'll pull my foot behind my butt, you know, or I'll, I'll bend over at the waist. They're going through these kind of random static stretching motions, thinking that's going to make them supple. What we feel is if you actually build up your full range of motion, you're creating that body awareness so that when you are activating that run, you're ready to go. We have a whole section on what we call movement snacks which are really, you know, goofy things like, like bear crawls, you know, uh, um, and, and movements like that where all you're really doing is activating your arms, your shoulders, your hips, your feet, so that when you start to run, everything is switched on and ready to go. It doesn't really mean stre stretching the muscle. It means activating that neuromuscular system so it's ready to activate into the running posture. Yeah, and this seems to me actually a much better way of getting ready for a run than sitting around doing a bunch of static stretching, which doesn't actually accomplish any of the goals we want before we go running, right? It's not going to increase your heart rate or your respiration. It's not going to improve your range of motion, maybe slightly. Uh, it's not going to lubricate your joints and really activate all of your muscles in the ways that are specific to running. So, you know, I was looking through the book earlier yesterday and just finding exercise after exercise of really great dynamic flexibility exercises that can be done pre-run. And they actually do what a warm-up is supposed to do, which I love. It's not a bunch of static stretching. Um, and I think that's going to be much more helpful. You know, a lot of runners are think that, okay, I'm, I'm getting ready for my run, but there's so many more benefits to this, right? I mean, you call them movement snacks. You not just get ready for your run, but you're practicing movement you are becoming a better athlete, building your coordination, your proprioception, and all those other skills that we do tend to ignore a little bit as runners when, you know, we're just kind of hammering away at that training plan. A lot of the times we don't do those exercises. So uh, I, I think the movement snacks is a, is a great way of adding some, some really effective movement practices to your running that also just make it fun. It's fun to bear crawl around and get a little goofy sometimes. You know, it's a terrific one, Jason, that I think is like the perfect pre-run exercise for anybody. Let's say you're going for a morning run. You're making coffee. You're in the kitchen. All you have to do while you're waiting for that coffee to get ready is balance on the forefoot of one foot and lift the other foot up in the air. Because what's going to happen is if you're balancing on your left forefoot, your right leg is going to be pivoting all over the place. Your arms are going to start to gyrate as you try to balance. You're going to look like a tightrope walker. You can do this in your kitchen. For 15 seconds, and just accidentally, you're going to wake everything up. You've now activated your foot core. Your arms have moved around. Your hips are swiveling as you try to find balance. You walk out the door, I guarantee you, 15 seconds of balancing on one foot 
is better than 30 minutes of doing any yoga pose you can come up with. And, and that goes into the, the whole foot core. I mean, you, you nailed it, Jason, is that, you know, turning on the neuromuscular system, everything starts with our feet from a stability standpoint. And we can be the strongest athlete in the gym, squats, whatever it is, we are only as strong as our feet. If you're a strong squatter, that chassis system's not strong in the foot core, that strength is doing you no good and actually could do a lot of harm. So by developing foot core strength by training the feet directly correlate to how well you activate all our muscles all the way up through our hip that we've been told is so crucial for running. You know, stabilization starts with our feet and nobody trains our feet. For sure. Um, you know, you're talking about training your feet and foot core. One of my questions is, since we're talking about born to run too, we have to talk about barefoot running a little bit. How do you think about barefoot running in terms of like where it fits into a training plan? You know, because I think anyone who's, you know, any recreational runner is training for a marathon, it's gonna be really hard for them to do all their running barefoot. That's probably not a good idea. How should runners think about barefoot running as a way of getting the benefits of barefoot running, because I do think there are so many of them. It's so valuable. You know, I was, I've been doing this since I was in high school on the track team. It was just a wonderful way to do some strides, but too, too often us adults, you know, we just don't do that anymore. We don't have the, the place or the space to do it in our lives, but you know, how do you think we should integrate it into a, into a normal training plan? So here's the thing about running Jason. I think this is where people really go off the rails. Most people are getting into running with a short-term immediate goal in mind. And it's usually one of two things. It's food-based or it's race-based. They're either getting in to compete or because they're hamster wheeling after some kind of weight loss program. I mean, how many times do you hear this? Hey, why'd you start running? Well, you know, I wanted to lose a few pounds or I wanted to get back in shape or I only run so I can eat whatever I want. So the problem is they've now made their fork their toast. You know, that what is dictating how much they run and how far is basically how much they're eating. And that, to me, is a terribly destructive cycle. But the second thing people get focused on is, is a race. Hey, I want to run a marathon in four months. So in, in both of those cases, chasing food and chasing a race, they put themselves on this kind of sprint target toward a short-term goal. And the way I look at running is the same way I would look at any other craft. If you're learning how to play the piano do taekwondo, swim, you master the basics of the movement. You start with the very basics first, develop mastery of that, and then you develop into something more competitive. And so when I look at barefoot running, to me, honestly, I feel like that should be the starting point. You know, let your feet become reacquainted with the ground. Let your body understand what it feels like to balance itself using the strength of the foot first. Not, you know, encasing itself in a big fat fed, uh, bed of foam with an arch support. So here's, here, here might be a simple solution to the problem. Uh, I, I honestly believe every person needs to reacquaint their bodies with the feel of the ground. My wife came up with, I think, the best approach of all. Whatever her run for that day was going to be, she would start off barefoot with her shoes in her hand. The second she felt any kind of discomfort, whether it was hitting a pebble or her calf was a little sore, whatever it was. She put the shoes back on and finished the run that way. And what happens is the first run might be 50 yards. The next day, it might be a quarter mile. But you start to reacquaint your feet so they become better at running barefoot. And gradually, you can increase the distance that you feel comfortable letting your feet be the first point of contact. Eric, do you have a different perspective on that? Yeah. You know, I obviously come from the coaching side of things. And, you know, so before I get into it, you know, we talked. Chris talked about, hey, go, going back and starting with the foundation of, of using barefoot. This is no different than we talked about earlier about speed, where maybe speed is the foundation, where that's how the racers grow up. They, they go through cross country and, and the speed is the, is the foundation. And as they get older, they develop into longer distances. That goes to what Chris is talking about with the feet and the barefoot running. From a coaching perspective, you know, I, I have athletes who hire me to coach them to a race year to year. Some I have, you know, I have, you know, a handful that I've worked with for over 10 years. So we take all that into account and I work from two ends. You know, I work from 
the more minimal side where some of their runs are developing a minimal strength running environment where they run in a minimal shoe. On the other end, they they're picking the shoe that they think they're going to race in, whether that's an ultra marathon or a marathon. Um, for example, I had a new athlete this year who was doing his first 100 mile race and he was relatively new to the sport. We transitioned him into a zero drop industry based minimal shoe for the race and he did great. So everybody's going to be a little different. And, and the, the idea from my perspective is through foot core strength training and through use of minimal shoes for some runs, the idea is to build strength through time to get into the most minimal environment for the race. And you know, my, for me, as an example, I run in the Teton. So my challenge is I, I have very good strength, so I want to be in the most natural shoe possible, but I also need protection from the rocks. So I'm, that's, that's the constant battle for me is I need some type of protection um, for me to run as fast as I want to on that day, but as also as, as natural as possible. So I, I, I tend not to see it all or nothing. Maybe Chris is a little bit more pure in, in his approach, but I'm looking at just like Chris, hey, see this as a martial arts through time. You're developing form, you're developing strength throughout your entire running career to get into the most natural running shoe environment for most of your runs. Eric, it sounds like we're, we're a little similar. You know, I do a lot of running, uh, out in the front range outside of Denver here. And I've historically not really liked trail shoes because they're typically very stiff. They have a, a very large stack height. Um, you know, they, they just don't let you feel the ground whatsoever underneath you. And I finally found a pair of Hoka's that have a four millimeter heel toe drop. I believe they're the Hoka Zanals. And they don't have that really thick uh, bed of, you know, rubber on the underside of the shoe. They're, they're much more, you know, targeted rubber, which then allows the shoe to be much more flexible. And for me, like, that's perfect for me. I, I love that. It's like this great combination of um, flexibility, low heel toe drop, but also, you know, a, uh, a, a wide toe box that has that trail uh, lugs underneath. So it's, it's a perfect approach uh, for me, at least. I, I will say this. Let me jump in real quick is that I think it's very, very important to understand the further you get your foot away from the ground, the more things can go wrong. So that's the idea is through time is that you want to you want to get as close to the ground as you can based on your own situation. From, from a health and performance standpoint, because again, how well we use the foot directly relates to how well we're using other muscles that we want for running. And training the feet can take away all the tug and pull, take away all the tightness that we have been brainwashed as, as, as runners to know that that's maybe par for the course and it doesn't have to be that way. And it starts with how we're using the feet, how far or close we are to the ground. So... When we are talking about strict barefoot running, no shoes whatsoever, what are some of the best things to do barefoot within a training program that might be really helpful for runners that, you know, isn't just going for a 10 mile run without shoes on? Yeah, I think first and foremost is that you're executing your strength training, whatever type of strength training you're doing and doing it barefoot, any type of movement. Obviously we have our skills and exercises in the book. All those are done barefoot. So again, you're feeling the ground. Our first line of stability is with our big toe and our arch. So whenever we have the opportunity to go barefoot, I work at home. I, I'm barefoot all every, every moment of the day that I'm able to. When I walk out the door, if I can't go barefoot, I'm finding the most minimal shoe possible. So 24-7, I'm training my feet to be close to the ground. And so with, with your question specifically, I think, you know, doing, doing some pickups, going to a, a grassy area where you can do pickups or do some easy, light and fast running or easy and slow running around the track. Anytime you can just run barefoot as part of 
a strength environment, I think, is, is going to behoove everybody. You know, Jason, I think the key point is the goal is not to actually run barefoot. The goal is not to host someday. I hope I can run a, bar- a marathon like a BBB heel and be barefoot. The goal is to get enough biofeedback so you know what your body's actually doing. And so for me, the reason why I tend to be more severe and a purist than Eric is because Eric has his form locked in. He's super strong. He's very knowledgeable. Uh, his form is pristine and great. I'm a backslider. You know, if I don't know what's going on, I will degenerate into poor form and not know it. And it really happened to me. It really opened my eyes back in, I guess it was like uh, 2007 or eight, wherever it was, when I was actually writing Born to Run. At that point, I'd er- worked with Eric for a while. I was back home in Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania. I had a pair of Nike Pegasus, which I thought was kind of like a middle ground back then between, you know, a cushion shoe and, and a more moderate shoe. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get heel pain again. I'm like, what's, what's going on? Like, I, my form is perfect. That can't be the problem. These shoes are minimal. That can't be the problem. And then I actually bumped into a guy, Lee Saxby, who's a parkour coach in uh, London. And he said, no, dude, the problem is your form is going to hell and you don't know it because you're not getting feedback from your feet anymore. So he was able to fix me up at that moment. And to me, it was like that lightning bolt that told me, if I ever start to stray into more cushioning, I'm not going to get the input that I need to remind me when things are going south. What kind of shoes do you run in now, Chris? Uh, super, super minimal. Uh, matter of fact, we're... Where were we? I think we were in, um, yeah, it was at the ultra running company in um, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a great resource and a great store. And they were breaking out a bunch of different pairs of ultras. And I was putting them on my feet like, dude, this is too much shoe. You know, the Escalante, this is just too much shoe. And Eric's like shaking his head like, too much shoe for you is an extreme minimal shoe for everybody else. Uh, So what I like right now is I like zero shoes are terrific. I run in Barefoot Ted's Luna Sandals. I've got a bunch of throwback shoes, uh, New Balance Minimus that, you know, is out of, out of production, but I buy them on eBay. But I would say my top three right now would be like Zero Shoes, Mesa Trail, Old New Balance Minimus, and uh, pair of Luna Sandals. It's a good lineup right there. Lots of different options, depending on where you're running, how long you're running, how fast you're running. Yeah, pretty good quiver. Yeah. And so if someone's listening and, and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do everything that Eric and Chris are saying, but you know, I still have to wear my running shoes. What kind of running shoe, or in other words, what characteristics of a running shoe should a runner look for when they go to the specialty shoe store? If they do want to start wearing less shoe, are, are there certain metrics or characteristics that are your go-tos when you're looking for a shoe that meets some of these requirements? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Number one, wide toe box. I mean, your shoe should look like your foot. And you look at most running shoes, they look nothing like the shape of the human foot. You know, uh, so a wide toe box, to me, minimal drop. I mean, four millimeters uh, drop from heel to toe is about the max that I would ever uh, entertain. And a lack of, of, of cushioning, um, too much cushioning underneath. Eric, what, what would you say? Yeah, so I, I would... Again, I'm kind of working on two two ends. I, I would, you know, in, in the book, we have to say we, the shoe we recommend is the, the Ultra Escalante for road and the Superior for the trail. And again, this is a way for people to gain the awareness of what that minimal environment is so they can, it, it's not an all or nothing equation um, from my perspective is that so Getting back to your question, I, I I think what's most important is the wide toe box and the zero drop that Chris mentioned, but also the flexibility. And and, and I, I think it's sometimes missed where people hear zero drop, but then there's a 28 mil stack height, you know, that I think isn't really minimal. You know, so it, it I, I think we also think that when we hear zero drop, that that means it's natural. Well, a zero drop, eight mil, 30 mil shoe is not natural. And so I, I feel flexibility is a huge, huge factor in picking a minimal shoe. And I would rather have a six mil, very, very flexible low to the ground than a 
zero drop 30 mil that's way above the ground. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I always struggled with trail running shoes is because they were so high up off the ground and they were so stiff and inflexible. Um, It was just not even comfortable to wear them. And I felt like I was going to fall on my face on all the rocks and roots and and all the gnarly things you find on the trail here in Colorado. Now, I've got to know, what do you guys think of the new super shoes that every elite is wearing these days in road races? Is that just a different conversation? Is that like very much a, you know, a, a very specific shoe for a very specific purpose that might only be a good idea for a particular type of runner? Or, or do you have a different perspective? Well, you know, it makes my head explode all the time because so much of recreational running has nothing to do with what's being pushed at us. You know, whatever a Formula One driver is putting on their vehicle, it's got nothing to do with what I'm doing in my running. And yet we see all these products that are supposed to make us faster. But this idea of moving at maximum velocity is is so destructive. You know, you don't drive your car the way a drag racer drives their car. Because that car is designed to be blown up. It's designed to be pushed into the point of, of destruction. Your bodies should not be pushed to the point of destruction. So putting a carbon-bladed shoe on somebody's foot, once again, it reinforces this notion about running as hard and as fast as you possibly can for as long as you can. To me, you know, where is the beauty of the craftsmanship, of the joy of mastering the movement? You know, Again, it's not about shaving a tenth of a second off your 10K. It's about making your body move in a way that at the end of that 10K, you feel really good and you want to go out and do a 10K the next day. So I just ignore all this stuff. I don't, I don't care about a springy blade, you know, because, you know, I guarantee you six months from now, there's going to be some other technological innovation that's supposed to make you faster and it's going to cost 250 bucks and not be worth it. And it's going to push you closer to injury and further away from mastery. How's that for a sermon from the mount? All right. Not from the coach. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I, I love to race. I, I coach runners to race. Um, I, I, I think you can um, treat the body well. I think you can train the body well to perform well and, and not be torture. If, if it's torture, you're, you're basically going too hard. You know, obviously, racing should be hard relative to the distance, but I think that, that can be healthy. I think where it becomes unhealthy is maybe when you over race or don't understand proper um, paces for you, especially in ultra marathoning. Um, but I, I've, I've thought about this a lot in relation to the super shoe. And I think, you know, I come from a triathlon background and, you know, gear and triathlon is a huge thing, especially on the bike between carbon fiber, aero technology. But one thing that has been proven to show the biggest speed improvement is wheels, aero wheels. Okay. And they're very expensive, but it's, it's in in a wind tunnel. It's been proven that this is where the triathlete is going to get their biggest bang for their buck as far as speed improvement from a technology standpoint, but it's only good after 25 miles an hour. So now you have all these triathletes who are spending thousands and thousands of dollars of wheels that can't go faster than 19 miles an hour. So they're not, they're not gaining that improvement because they're not fast enough. And I wonder if that's not the case with the majority of the people with the super shoes, because I can guarantee you they're not good for us from a biomechanical standpoint. If you watch any of the elite runners r- running in slow motion, you can see excessive pronation going on that is just, I cringe when I see it. And so I, but I also know they work. There's world records going on right now. I don't think that is, um, I, I don't think that's just part of the process. I think it's, it's because of the shoes. And so they work. And so I then go to my mind, I played football in, in college and many of my, Teammates and competitors took steroids. I did not. Steroids work, but I never thought that it was for me. And I never thought that it gave that person advantage over me. Whether it did or not, I just never had that mindset. So 
I think it's a personal decision based on what your goals are. But I do know that there there's dysfunction that's taking place by wearing these shoes. There's my spiel. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation because you know, I, I'm not aware of any studies or data behind the idea that they, the these types of shoes lead to worse running form, but it's it's clear anecdotally that they do, and I just wonder if some of the benefits outweigh you know some of the uh, the drawbacks of wearing these shoes. And at, look, at the end of the day, maybe m- maybe the answer isn't either or. It's it's both. It's yes, let's work on our form. Let's get stronger feet. Let's be barefoot a lot. Let's do these movement snacks and drills so that we're having supple muscles and improving that neuromuscular coordination. And then once in a while, when we do go run a marathon, yeah, we put on the super shoes and we try to eke out that extra three seconds a mile and hopes of the BQ that we're getting after. But you know, in my mind, that's maybe one of the better ways of using these shoes at the same time, doing all the other work to develop strong feet and lower legs. So Jason, here's a, here's a key point about shoes. I think that, you know, you asked me what I like, I, I named three kinds of shoes, but I probably own 10 different kinds of shoes. And the reason why is because they feel good. There's a sensory delight you get from putting on a different kind of a shoe. Same reason why we don't always eat oatmeal three times a day, because there's a sensory delight in tasting a different kind of recipe, a different kind of food. And so, you know what? If you put that super shoe on your feet and it feels good and you have fun with it, that's a plus. Anything which heightens the joy of running, that's a plus. I'm all for it. Um, my only concern would be, hey, let's make sure that we're focusing on everything. You know, not just thinking the shoe is the answer, but a shoe is a complement. It's a spice which can make everything else, you know, feel enhanced. Amen. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's a good approach. And and I think it's it, it's an approach that permeates your new book because your new book really focuses on some of the fundamentals of movement and on the basics of, of running that I think are often glossed over. So I think it's a really fantastic training guide for runners who who maybe are just starting, who want to restart. You know, maybe they have a string of injuries or their performances have plateaued. They're not sure what's going on with their running right now, but they just don't feel good on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. I think the the focus on form, the focus on footwear and sprinting all get down to the very fundamental issue of let's move well before we then go and try to move for a very long time. And I think that's one of the keys to this book and what makes it so powerful. So guys, have I missed anything that you wanted to talk about before we cut for today? I mean, we, we, I know we flew through a lot, but this was a really uh, quick overview of all the great stuff in your book. Well, I was going to say one thing is that Eric makes this point, you know, that running is for everybody and running is for every body. And I think so much of us look at ourselves way too critically about how we run, how fast we are, how we move. And what we really want to emphasize more than anything else is that running is a human legacy for all of us, no matter what your age or body size or speed is. And if we can focus on the pleasure of it first and enjoy the process of getting better at it, like that's the big win. I love it. Well, Chris, Eric, thanks for being here, sharing your wisdom and expertise. Thanks for all you do for the running community. Uh, you've contributed so much over the years and you're kind of like the, the, the biggest author celebrity out there for runners uh, because of the amazing storytelling that you're doing. So thanks again for all you're doing. And Born to Run 2 is now available for pre-order. Is that right? That's right. Sure is. Yeah, yeah. Get it by Christmas. All right. Great Christmas and stocking stuffer here. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for listening in, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And if you love this podcast, please consider supporting our sponsors who help make it possible. The links and discount codes below indicate to our sponsors that their advertising is working. So support us by supporting them. A big thanks to Rock and Roll Arizona for their support on this episode. Now that temperatures are dropping and we can all take advantage of the cooler, more running-friendly temperatures, it's time to plan some races. Mark your calendars for January 14th and 15th 
because Rock and Roll Arizona is the runcation you've been waiting for. Located in Tempe, Arizona, celebrate the start of 2023 with a tri-city foot tour through the Valley of the Sun. Run through the iconic red sandstone formations of Papago Park, snap a selfie in front of colorful art murals and installations, and soak up that southwestern style while dancing and dashing through the streets. Rock and Roll Arizona delivers a weekend extravaganza that will give you the amazing race experience you're looking for to start 2023. Sign up today at runrockandroll.com slash Arizona and use the code STRENGTHRUNNING15 for 15% off any distance. Get ready for the Valley of the Run. We're also supported by Melon Hats, quite possibly the best looking, most attractive hats I've ever worn. Melon makes premium hats for both casual use and for running. Get 20% off your first order at melon.com slash strengthrunning and use code STRENGTHRUNNING. They are durable. They're water repellent, high quality, incredibly detailed, and stylish. You can also check out our latest video on YouTube to see my full collection. A melon hat is likely the last hat you'll ever buy. They'll last practically forever. But even if you find that you don't like your melon hat, no worries. You can return it within 30 days with no questions asked, according to their perfect fit promise. They also have thermal hats, which if you're shaving your head like I am, you're going to need a warmer hat in the wintertime. Now Melon is giving our podcast listeners an exclusive offer of 20% off your first order. Go to melon.com slash strengthrunning and use code strengthrunning for 20% off. If Melon doesn't become your new favorite hat, send it back for a full refund. No questions asked. Again, that's melon.com slash strengthrunning and use code strengthrunning for 20% off. Pick one up and let me know what you think. All right, that's our show today, my friends. Thank you for sharing this episode with your running friends, for your reviews and Apple Music, and for being part of our community. We'll be in touch. 